Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast, your weekly dose of talking about watching soccer on TV, online and apps. Coming up on episode 43, we debate whether soccer is a niche sport in the United States or not, as well as updating you on the end of an era at Fox Soccer after two top executives leave the company. And we discuss which European league wants to play regular season games in the United States. Plus, we have a ton of letters from you, the listeners, in our mail, mailbag section. My name is Christopher Harris, a.k.a. The Gaffer, and I'm joined by Kartik Krishnaya. Kartik, both you and I are... We survived Hurricane Irma. Uh, what an ordeal that was. Uh, I ended up uh, evacuating and went to Tennessee uh, just to get away from the storm for uh, about a week and um, had no power in Florida for about five to six days. So I was glad I got away. Um, what about you? How, how did uh, the storm end or the hurricane end up for you? Well, it was a lot worse than it should have been. I, I, the, the area you and I live in got, uh, according to the National Weather Service, got Category 1 force winds and Category 2 force gusts. But uh, it's still absolutely ravaged this area. Uh, 90% of the people were left without power, myself included, you included. Obviously, you weren't in town, but there was no point in you returning when you didn't have power. Uh, and uh, tree limbs down, not as much structural damage as uh, is, is possible in a hurricane. But again, we only had count one winds in um, the southeastern Florida area. And just general havoc around town and uh, uh, tr- trees down lots of uh, lots of uprooted trees uh, and, and um, just general uh, I think uh, a, just a general kind of um, I can't even describe the adjective but uh, there is a, a just a sense that we got hit by a freight train yeah. and there's um, very little kind of um, lingering ability to get back to normal i think this is going to linger with us in southeast florida for a while mm-hmm. yeah and, and and as it relates to soccer i mean a lot of uh soccer in terms of postponements um whether it's games in texas uh this week the copa mex games or mx games in uh in mexico uh, all of those were canceled and in florida hit by the weather and a lot of kind of uh, last minute uh schedule changes uh, right before hurricane Irma to try to get squeeze matches in before these uh before the hurricane hit so, yeah, and, and uh, uh, several delays at NASL, Miami FC's last uh, 
two games have been postponed. Tampa Bay had uh, a, a road trip cut short where uh, USL rightly postponed their game away in Bethlehem and let them come back. Uh, the players come back to be part of the, uh, to be with their families during the storm. Uh, Jacksonville Armada, I believe, had two games postponed. So it's been, uh, it's been tough. Uh, the, the thing that, and I, I'm going to use this form to point it out. The thing I just still do not understand, cannot justify, is Major League Soccer having Orlando City play a game, which they ended up winning, and it's, their first, it's only their third win in the last three and a half months. But a game at RFK Stadium against DC United when their area was under a hurricane warning and the airport in Orlando was already shut down because of high winds. Hmm. I and they played that away game. So they, they didn't yeah. spend the time with their family. They didn't come back. There was no way for them to return to Orlando after the game for several days. Yet they played the game very nonchalantly. MLS made no mention of, uh, of the hurricane, whereas uh, USL had uh, brought the Rowdies, who were also playing an away game that same night, home, po- made an early decision to postpone it on Wednesday. So the Rowdies uh, were able to cut their road trip short and come back to the Tampa Bay area. Uh, NWSL moved up the Orlando Pride game to a Thursday night. So they got that out of the way and they got the Seattle rain out of town uh, before the storm came and before uh, the airport closed. And as I said, NASL canceled two Miami FC games and two Jacksonville Armada games. So mm-hmm. to me, it's just a stunner. It's, it's uh, uh, MLS. Uh, and I, and I, they did cancel a Houston game during Harvey. So it's not that they're unaware of the weather, but uh, I was just stunned by it. As we can see, I mean, whether it's hurricanes or earthquakes, they definitely have an impact on soccer, and, and so they should. Uh, in regards to soccer, of course, last week we had no podcast because of uh, both Kartik and I were without power, uh, and also running around trying to get shutters up and just trying to get everything ready uh, for the approaching storm uh, and hurricane. And then, um, and then this week for this podcast, uh, well, actually, for the past week or so, or the last couple of weeks, I think both you, Kartik, and I, haven't watched as much soccer as we normally would just because, uh, like I said, we've been uh, taking care of our families and, and businesses and just, just making sure that uh, everyone was safe and neighbors, etc. So, but one thing, Kartik, I, 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 and of course, for each show that we do, um, we don't talk about it beforehand, so both you and I are going cold into this. But from the last week or so of watching soccer, uh, and of course I was able to watch quite a few games in Tennessee, but what I did find out, Kartik, was, at least for me uh, personally, was that there haven't been a lot of exciting games. We've seen a lot of um, kind of blowouts. I mean, a lot of blowouts, whether it's in the League Cup or or the Premier League, um, or a lot of uh, very parking-the-bus type of games where it's extremely negative and just teams holding on defensively to try to get, you mean, a point. Um, I haven't personally seen any really exciting games that I can say, like, wow, that was a great game. I really enjoyed that exciting, open-ended game of soccer. Uh, wasn't that fantastic? And what about you, Carter? Did you see anything um, in the last couple of weeks that, uh, that really stood out? No, not really. I think we're seeing a situation, as you mentioned, where you've got greater imbalances or kind of implied within these European leagues and teams are either parking the bus and trying to score on the counter or uh, there are teams like Manchester City and Dortmund, although Dortmund concedes a lot of goals. There are teams that are just playing other teams off the pitch, but I watched Dortmund against Cologne the other day and it wasn't, it wasn't even, uh, it wasn't even a contest. So 
there just seems to be a growing imbalance in a lot of these uh, European leagues. And, and even, uh, I know you watched uh, uh, Spurs-Swansea, and I'm probably happy with the result. But again, that was a, a one, one-way traffic, and it was Swansea, well-organized, hanging on for a result. But uh, there, was, uh, there was no contest there, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And for me, I mean, I'm probably one of the very few, but to me, that was uh, Swansea's performance in that match was a masterclass in, in playing a 3-5-2 and just trying to park the bus and prevent uh, Spurs from creating too many chances and just trying to claw away for, for a, a draw and, if lucky, on, on a counter-attack, uh, a win. And actually, towards the end of the game, last five, ten minutes of, game, of the game, it looked like they might get a goal. Um, but for the, for the neutrals or for the fans of uh, other teams, uh, that must have been an incredibly boring match, as was the Swansea-Newcastle game, too, which is Swansea's playing very conservatively. They're much a different, much a different team uh, now than they were under Brendan Rodgers or Gary Monk. This is a definitely a very pragmatic Swansea. The, uh, the thing that I would also note about that game, which to me is interesting, is tactically you had Pochettino not have any pretense that he would have to defend. And he put uh, he stuffed another attacker in, in putting uh, uh, in, in putting um, uh, God, Son in, in as a left wing back instead of uh, Davies, a, another attacking player, a guy who had uh, double digit goals in the Premier League last year, because he figured that Swansea wasn't going to attack and that he would use those wing back positions or one of those wing back positions to uh, fit another attacker into his team. And I wonder if that will be a growing tactical trend as teams park the bus, since more and more teams are playing with three at the back, do you use those wing back positions to maybe this is something Liverpool does because they have so, so much trouble against uh, uh, bunker teams. Maybe now that they've signed Alex Oxley Chamberlain, they do play him at right wing back in, in those sorts of games. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense in terms of a, a competing tactic that to, to kind of break down that, that wall of uh, sometimes you've you got uh, 10 defenders essentially behind the ball. Um, the one game I, I did watch, Kartik, that I did enjoy watching um, in terms of at least it was very competitive, uh, and that was Chelsea against Arsenal. I thought the, the level of football was great. Uh, it was really one of those games where Arsenal lifted up their performance um, to a level that uh, really competed well against Chelsea. And, and to me, that was a, it was an example of a highly entertaining nil-nil game. Because I mean, a lot of so- soccer critics say, like, ah, nil-nil, how boring could that be? This was an example of a really entertaining game. Uh, unfortunately, no goal in this one. But uh, but Peter Drury in this one, Kartik, I don't know if you caught this one, was that um, when Arsenal did score the goal, uh, which was later dis- disallowed, uh, Peter Drury, like, screaming, proclaiming, Arsenal, take the lead at the bridge. And it was so kind of emphatic, so kind of like, oh, my gosh, did you just see that? This is history in the making. Look at this. And then and then the whistle blew for to disallow the goal. Uh, a little bit of egg on the face of Peter Drury, but... Um, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, I think this is also kind of interesting because there's been so much panic among the uh, the Arsenal fans uh, during uh, the first few weeks of the season, summer of discontent again uh, among fans at the Emirates. But this is a very credible result. And while every match does matter in the Premier League, I know critics of Major League Soccer like to say that nothing matters until right before the playoffs and every game in the Premier League matters. With Arsenal, it doesn't really, because we see this, we generally see this every season. Arsenal starts slowly out of the gates and they find a way into the top four. Now, it didn't happen last season, and last season the first match of the season did matter because they lost to Liverpool at the Emirates and Liverpool ended up piping them by a point, point or two for fourth. But uh, I, I tell you, 
I think that there was probably a little too much panic at, at the uh, at, at, in the media everywhere mm-hmm. about Arsenal. This is a very, very credible result. It's still September. And generally, they don't get these sorts of results early in the season. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's Arsenal. It's, it's just a typical... Uh... Roller coaster, kind of a seesaw. I mean, it's the, the fans go crazy, and and the public, and, and uh, everyone on social media go like, ah, Wenger out, and then the next game they come along and uh, put in a really good performance. Now the next performance after that probably is going to be a weak one, but uh, we we've been through this so many times that people do kind of over exaggerate, and I think I think NBC Sports to to the degree too in terms of that. Um, it was a demoralizing uh, defeat from Arsenal. What it was a couple of weeks ago? A few weeks ago. But uh, they really went in big time, kind of with knives almost, uh, in, into Arsenal's uh, performance that match, uh, which was poor. But uh, as we've seen, they, they bounced back from that. And, and they'll go down again, and then they'll bounce back again. It's, it's the same old story. The, the other thing to remember about this is that Chelsea now has uh, winless in their last three against Arsenal, won four of the five under Antonio Conte. Chelsea's great... Uh, record-breaking Premier League season last season when they won the title was largely on the backs of how they performed against the um, t- the other sides in the league below the top of top six. So uh, they dropped points last season to Arsenal. They, they uh, dropped points to Liverpool. They dropped points to Man United. But they uh, they dropped points to Tottenham. But, but they had uh, 95 points or whatever at the end of the season. Uh, so they are uh, 93 points, whatever it was. I, I think that uh, this will disappoint Antonio Conte, but they, other than that one-off against Burnley, have shown over the last two seasons they don't. They generally don't drop points to lesser sides. And then we had uh, Atlanta against Orlando Kartik that was on uh, Saturday on Univision Deportes. Uh, for those listeners who don't know, this was a uh, MLS record attendance. Uh, it broke the record at over seventy thousand people. But uh, what was the, the television product like in terms of kind of that experience uh, from what you saw, Kartik? Yeah, I, I DVR'd the game because I uh, had uh, uh, taken a trip out to the west coast of Florida to, to check out hurricane damage from Irma. And unfortunately, I didn't turn my phone off for alerts, so I, I knew the score when I got back. The television experience was really good on Univision. I think they do a better job than Fox of capturing the ambiance and the atmosphere at games, and we've talked about this before, uh, obviously with, with regards to Fox and, and how they cover various soccer events and how the crowd is drowned out, it seems. They, uh, Univision did an outstanding job. Uh, the game was very entertaining. It was uh, Atlanta United, who was an entertaining team. Uh, for those of you who don't watch Major League Soccer, they're a team that plays uh, a very slick brand of football. They're able to keep the ball and pass while they're also able to counterattack, which they were which they did pretty well in this game, although uh, defensively they weren't able to handle Orlando's uh, uh, aerial game with Dom Dwyer and Kyle Aaron, which was a, a, a good thing for, for Orlando because Orlando has had a very poor season. Right. Uh, another aspect of this game that was interesting was that uh, we have a situation where I think Orlando fans, and I know a lot of them listen to this podcast, uh, have a, a, a developing or maybe it's a fully developed envy and jealousy now of um, of Atlanta, and it's their closest rival in MLS also. Orlando uh, built their team the proper way, if you will, in, in the lower leagues, worked their way up from USL 
to Major League Soccer. Uh, they've set, they were the ones setting attendance records uh, until this year when Atlanta came to the league. Atlanta kind of uh, appeared out of thin air. They're, they're not a lower, former lower division club. Uh, the Silverbacks were the lower division club in NASL in, in Atlanta. And uh, they have a good team. They have the team with the fourth best record in the league, in the entire league, 22-team league in their first season. Uh, so, and Orlando will, it, it, it appears, miss the playoffs for the third successive year. So there's a, a budding rivalry there. That added to the ambiance. A lot of traveling Orlando fans, uh, many of them probably traveling still without power after the hurricane, um, much like you getting out of town, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, driving a little bit north. And it added to, to the atmosphere at the game. So I, I, I quite enjoyed it. Now, the only issue I have is that it's an indoor stadium with field turf. And that um, kind of minimizes the experience, I have yeah. to say. And I think uh, this is my, my reaction to most indoor stadiums, to be honest with you, even if there's grass. And if it's uh, turf, it makes it worse. For me, yeah, Kartik, I had uh, the opposite kind of opinion in terms of what you saw in terms of this match. I was really, uh, yes, the crowd was fantastic, um, incredible crowd, but I was really turned off, first of all, by the field turf. I mean, it's, it's an astroturf uh, pitch, so the ball, the bounce, I mean, it's not as bad as some of the pitches in the, well, the 70s or 80s NESL days, but um, that I was turned off by. But the other thing I didn't like was just the way that this match was televised. I mean, it's not Univision's fault, but um, you could not see the, the massive crowds. You, you, it was um, the way that the camera angles were set up. I guess it's set up for NFL football, but uh, it didn't give you kind of the, the viewpoint in terms of seeing just how full the stands were. You kind of just saw maybe, I don't know, the, the bottom 10 rows or something like that, and you missed kind of the big walls on the side. Um, so I thought from a television perspective, I was disappointed. Um, I watched about 10 minutes of the match, and uh, to be honest with you, with the field turf, I just completely got turned off and, and switched channels. I did see um, uh, Joseph Martinez's uh, goal, the header, which was fantastic, uh, brilliant goal, but uh, I just can't watch soccer this way. It just, it just feels inauthentic and uh, completely turned me off. And it, feel, it feels like it's filled. And it was a strange thing, too, because it was a, what, four o'clock kickoff on a Saturday. But the way, I, I don't know if the roof was open or not, but the lighting, it just felt like it was, it could have been at you know, 10 o'clock at night, or it could have been, you didn't have that natural light coming into the pitch. I don't know. It just felt like it was watching something plastic. That's my thoughts, Kartik. So th- let's move on to some of the other games. Um... Well, I'll, I'll point on one thing real quickly about that. that. That's my kind of takeaway from the Atlanta experience. And it's odd because in Major League Soccer, Don Garber himself said part of the reason why they opted to uh, elevate the NASL team from Minnesota, Minnesota United, versus going with uh, the Minnesota Vikings bid for an MLS team. And obviously Minnesota's entered Major League Soccer the same year as Atlanta, was that Minnesota United, uh, an established NASL brand, a team that traces its lineage actually back further than any MLS team, back to the early 90s, um, was building an outdoor stadium. And that was important to Major League Soccer. But for some reason in Atlanta, it wasn't important. So that still confuses me. I think there are inconsistencies in what they want and in which markets. I'm glad they've done the right thing in Minnesota, by the way. But uh, yeah, I, I can't argue with you on that point. Yeah, the strange thing is, is I mean, the uh, the Bobby Dodd Stadium to me wasn't made for soccer, but was a better experience than watching from a television perspective watching yeah. games there than it is in this beautiful stadium, which looks like state of the art, 
looks incredible. And I'm sure if you're at the match and you're in that stadium, um, it's a, probably a brilliant experience. But just watching it on television just feels, I don't know, it just feels cheap. I, it just it just does not just does not feel right. It does not feel natural because it should be a natural grass. I mean, with the stadium, I don't know. Uh, uh, anyway, let's move on, Kartik. So what are some of the other things you watched this past week that uh, you want to highlight? Yeah, so I, I, I watched the League Cup uh, going kind of out of order here. Uh, the League Cup, and I had some trouble with my internet during that, and I, I don't know if it's my internet, although some other people complained. The ESPN3 stream is either perfect or it stalls for a few seconds and jumps ahead. And that happened to me many times on Tuesday. I finally gave up on Wednesday. I didn't give up because it was a Manchester City game, but I ended up missing Leroy Sané's uh, game winner uh, mm-hmm. because of that. And it, it's uh, it's frustrating because I'll say that when uh, last year in the same competition when I was using the Go90 app uh, for um, for the games and uh, for using VN Sports Go90 app, there were none of these problems. Now, it could be that my internet has slowed down post-Irma. I know this is a common problem in, in throughout the state of Florida where there were people, like our friend Neil Blackman, doesn't uh, have internet at all right now. Mm-hmm. And his Wi-Fi is not working, uh, even though he finally got power back. So th- there, is, uh, there are internet problems. What will be important for me to see is if it happens in this set of championship games coming up and then the next round of uh, the League Cup. If that's the case, then it may be a bandwidth issue with, uh, with ESPN3. Yeah, I, I watched um, most of the games. Well, on, on the Tuesday, I watched the Reading-Swansea game. Um, I did hop around a little bit just to see what, what, what was going on in the other matches. I didn't experience any issues on Tuesday. Um, Wednesday, same thing too, just n- no problems for me on my side. And again, it could be internet connection-wise, or it could be just that that particular stream, let me say, for the West Brom Man City game might have had a lot more viewers and may have had some technical issues, but I didn't see any from my side. Um, what I would say, the Kotick, is that um, seven League Cup games on ESPN3 midweek, uh, to me, that's better than what BN Sports was offering last season. Uh, of course, um, with BN Sports, I mean, probably one or two of those games would have been on television. We don't get that yet with uh, the ESPN 3s. Um, but overall, in terms of quantity, we got that. Uh, the quality was lacking, I think, not not from the production value, but just in terms of the matches themselves. Most of them were very one-sided, and actually on the Wednesday's matches, I think in the first like 10 or 15 minutes, most of the, the Uniteds, the Cities, uh, had already scored goals, so I ended up... Um, switching over, I think, to Hamburg against uh, Dortmund to watch that match, uh, the second half of that one, and that ended up being a really one-sided game too. So uh, I was looking for a really entertaining game. I could not find one, uh, and, and that's what I've been doing, kind of struggling with the last couple of weeks is trying to find some really entertaining two-sided football matches where you never know who's, who's going to win, open-ended, and uh, we're not seeing a lot of, that, lot of that. I would say that for the Hamburg-Dortmund game, it was... Um, uh, interesting. Actually, it was positive to see Alexi Lalas in the studio for the studio coverage there with Ronaldo and uh, Ian Joy. And Lalas seemingly interested in the Bundesliga in a studio an- uh, analysis. Did a good job and didn't seem as bored uh, or monotone as he is sometimes when he's calling some of the, the Premier League matches uh, competing in the Europa League. So that was good to see. And, and actually, it was a, a good broadcast from Fox uh, in terms of um, the Bundesliga. Anything else, Kartik, that you've been watching the last couple of weeks you want to point out? 
No, not really. I mean, as as you mentioned at the outset, we haven't watched as much football. That Dortmund uh, Cologne game, I did watch. I, I guess I should mention real quickly U.S. Open Cup final with John Champion and Taylor Twelman. Great atmosphere at Children's Mercy Park, and uh, another. U.S. Open tryout for Kansas City. That's their fourth. Uh, New York Red Bulls still, uh, other than supporters, Shields trophyless. So that was a that was a good game. Um, and uh, tried to watch the previous game, the Atlanta LA Galaxy game that was on ESPN. They had a doubleheader. Uh, that was a waste of time. Atlanta ripped them open, and uh, it, it was so bad that uh, with this ongoing litigation that the, that the NASL's filed against the U.S. Soccer Federation, uh, Nipun, our former co-host on the show, Neil Blackman, the aforementioned Neil Blackman, and I decided just to rip out a podcast in the second half. We knew we wanted to do one, and that was the most opportune time because that game was uh, had become unwatchable. Yeah, I watched, uh, actually watched about five minutes of the match. Uh, I think tuned in right at halftime, so it was 4-0, and then watched maybe like the last five minutes of the Atlanta LA Galaxy game, where Atlanta was really just passing the ball back foot back and forward as if it was a uh, preseason friendly, and LA Galaxy kind of sitting back, not even trying to, to get the ball. It seemed uh, a big turnoff, and, and and even I think it was uh, Alejandro Moreno and Adrian Healy seemed really bored to not really saying much, uh, just a waste of a match there. Uh, did Kartik, did, did, did you catch it at all? I mean, did ESPN2 with the broadcast um, of the U.S. Open Cup uh, final, did they go into the NASL antitrust lawsuit at all? Or, or ESPN FC, did they talk about it this week? Uh, I'm back, backed up on my ESPN FC um, ESPNFC viewing, so I don't know yet. I have Tuesday and Wednesday on DVR. Okay. As far as uh, this U.S. Open Cup final, no, I don't remember it being mentioned or during the uh, Atlanta LA Galaxy game. So that's uh, that was Adrian Healy and Alejandro Moreno. I don't remember any mention of it. That having been said, ESPNFC has talked about it on their website, so it's not like they're they're skirting it completely. I just don't know that they've discussed it on the on the show program as of yet okay all right so Kartik let's move on to uh, tv streaming news yeah um so uh as we alluded to at the outset of the podcast uh, it's been almost two weeks now since uh um David Nathanson uh, stepped down or has left Fox Sports and and he uh, has been with the network for um for years and um, was uh, really instrumental in their soccer coverage, not just uh, in acquiring the World Cup rights for uh, 2018, 2022, and 26, but uh, he uh, did a lot of work with Fox Soccer Channel. He was a key player in pushing soccer as a big uh, agenda item for FS1 and FS2 when it launched. And he'd been with Fox uh, since 1999 and had uh, managed Fox Sports World back in the day. Remember that? And, and, and uh, Fox Soccer Channel. So uh, a big loss for the soccer world. And one thing that had struck everybody when FS1 and FS2 launched, and they did all their launch events, uh, publications like Sports Business Journal and The Wall Street Journal, was how much... Fox executives, and particularly David Nathanson, talked about soccer's importance in the role in the launches of those networks. And um, so that's, uh, th- that, that's unfortunate, I think, for soccer's presence on Fox. Also leaving Fox is uh, John T. Whitehead, who was responsible for Fox's production uh, of the ch- a lot of their Champions League coverage, FA Cup, and Europa League. Yeah, the, the, the timing of this is a little bit strange. I mean, you've got uh, one of the top guys at Fox Sports who's been managing the, the soccer side of the business, 
from back in the Fox Soccer Channel days, like you said, Kartik, and then also the um, the top producer, executive producer, who's been doing a lot of the the Champions League and FA Cup and Europa League. So the timing of him leaving Johnny Whitehead and taking a consultancy role is a bit strange, uh, especially with a lot of these rights coming up. Um, I mean, they lost the Champions League, but I guess both of them probably think in their heads that they can probably go on to bigger and better things, and maybe this is an opportunity for them to, to move ahead. But uh, we'll have to wait and see how this impacts Fox uh, Sports' coverage of the uh, of soccer in general, uh, whether it's going to help it or, or hurt it. Uh, John T. Whitehead, in an interview he did with Alexi Lalas about a year ago, uh, was really really dismissive of um, U.S. soccer uh, fans in general, just kind of saying that uh, he he purposely dumbed down the coverage uh, to appeal to to U.S. soccer fans and it wasn't as kind of in depth as, as he would have been when he worked at Sky uh, in the U.K. So so that will be interesting to see if that changes. If it, I don't know. At the end of the day, I think Fox will be the same. I don't think there's going to be any big changes, but. Uh, but behind the scenes, um, there is an opportunity here for, for uh, new people with new ideas to step in and maybe do things a little bit differently and maybe perhaps a little bit better. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens there. Kartik, in other news, uh, La Liga uh, has uh, announced plans that they would like to uh, go ahead and play regular season games overseas now, their president, uh, Javier Tabas, uh, says that the 20 La Liga clubs have discussed the possibility of playing matches overseas, um, possibly in the United States, possibly in China, as part of their regular season schedule. And uh, La Liga would have to get approval from UEFA and FIFA to make this happen. Uh, there was an article, actually, I think about a week ago from uh, Bobby McMahon on Forbes, and uh, he said that uh, La Liga's really kind of thinking of... Um, kind of thinking too big in terms of uh, these the, the, what they think that La Liga is all about because other than Barcelona and Real Madrid and Atleti and maybe Sevilla um, really who's going to watch uh, I don't know Ibar against Las Palmas so who's going to get excited about watching I don't know uh, some of the, the, the other teams from La Liga it's really about Real Madrid and really about Barcelona and uh those are just two teams out of 20. What are you going to do about the other you know, 16 teams that are not going to be as as big as uh, as those? So that one maybe is just a lot of talk from La Liga, but perhaps maybe... I mean, out of all the leagues uh, in Europe, La Liga has been the most aggressive in trying to change everything, change the format, change off, change the kickoff times, and really go uh, try to go, go, go uh, global. So you never know. It's uh, But big plans here from La Liga. Kartik, what about some other news? Yeah, so um, Sky has signed a deal with the Football League for the UK rights to the Championship League 1, League 2, and the League Cup, of course, uh, from 2019 to 2024. The $800 million uh, in U.S. dollars TV deal is a uh, 36% increase in fees from the president agreement. Under the new deal, this is important because there are a lot of midweek fixture dates uh, in uh, the Football League. Sky will be able to stream all midweek championship games, which is the first time in the UK for a deal like this. And that's uh, a great deal for or for fans because typically those games kick off at 7.45 or 8 o'clock local time. And there has been complaints by fans that it's a weeknight. They can't get to the grounds. They can't travel the way they normally would. 
and uh, they don't get to see the matches. So that's, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, and it could have an impact in the U.S. I mean, right now, uh, ESPN3 is streaming um, usually maybe midweek games, maybe, maybe one or two. So um, a lot of that is because um, the other games aren't available. So in 2019, if ESPN still has the deal through BAMTech, uh, there's a possibility that they might be able to show more of those games uh, to the U.S. Uh, the other complication, though, though too, is that... Um, I follow, which is the streaming service uh, from the, the clubs in the football league. Uh, they stream, I mean, all of the games, um, almost all of the games, uh, worldwide outside of uh, the UK and Ireland. So uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens there because, I mean, you've got people paying subscription fees uh, to see those games. And now, if more games are going to be available, does that decrease the number of I follow subscribers? Uh, as people then continue to watch it on ESPN3. But we're still a ways off from knowing exactly uh, if ESPN3 and BAMTech would even have the rights at that stage and how that would impact. So, But and it, something to keep an eye out for. Context, so uh, Netflix and Amazon have reportedly approached Chelsea, Manchester City, and Liverpool about a plan to broadcast behind-the-scenes documentaries of these clubs. Uh, it's being seen as a, a way for both Netflix and Amazon to delve into the UK sports market, according to, to the Daily Mirror. Now, we saw a few years ago, maybe even four or five years ago now, uh, being Liverpool, which was meant to be part of a whole, whole series that Fox Sports launched. They wanted, they wanted to do Be in Arsenal, Be in Manchester United. Uh, but they launched Be in Liverpool, which was a documentary series uh, behind, the, behind the kind of a fly on the wall, which is like, I don't know, like a four-part, a five-part series. And uh, it was uh, shot and filmed and uh, released in the UK and, and the US. And for the most part, it was kind of, uh, it was mixed Mixed, mixed uh, reviews. Um, I thought it was actually, at the time, the only things I re- actually remember from it just a few scenes, and that was the Brendan Rodgers uh, envelope uh, trick that he did um, with the players in the hotel. And then there was the, Ra- the Raheem Sterling, um, where Brendan Rodgers uh, told him off in, in a training session for not listening or p- not paying attention. Uh, and, and then I remember kind of the, the poet uh, talking about Liverpool and what it meant to to live in the streets of Liverpool and things like that. But the rest of it's kind of a blur. I don't, I don't really remember too much of it. But uh, what do you think, Karthik? Do you think this could be a good idea or is this something that uh, could be along the lines of being Liverpool? No, I think it could be a very good idea. And actually, Fox, had they not lost the Premier League rights, were exploring doing a being Man City and being Chelsea. So it's the same clubs that uh, five years ago now, because that was 2012, uh, early 2012, uh, early in the 2012-13 season when those being Liverpool specials aired, uh, e- e- would be uh, s- similar clubs. And I think it's a, it's a good idea. Although I have to say, I've enjoyed NBC's behind-the-scenes looks at uh, using Gary Lineker's production company at Crystal Palace, West Brom, Watford, more, because those are uh, still more um, homespun, uh, regional clubs, neighborhood clubs, if you will, uh, town, uh, clubs in, in uh, in the case of uh, West Brom, in a in a city that neighbors Birmingham and has a, a strong fan base and has a historic club, so uh, this will be a different perspective. Because when you talk about Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City, you're talking about global brands, which is why Netflix and Amazon are interested in it. But it may not be as interesting to diehard football fans like us. Uh, uh, to me, the standard is still the QPR four-year plan documentary. Yeah. 
I, that that's the uh, gold standard. I I do a refresher course every six months and watch that documentary again because it reminds me about some of the behind the scenes at a football club, and that's a pretty high standard. I'm not sure. Um, Man City, Chelsea, or Liverpool will ever give the kind of access to documentary filmmakers because of the consciousness they have about their brand right. to get that level of uh, interest. Yeah to, yeah, to me, it seems to be more of a uh, promotional piece. I mean, and, and I'm sure the clubs are looking at this. I'm sure Liverpool looked at it, looked at it, uh, being Liverpool as a promotional piece, um, mainly for the U- USA. How do we promote our, our club to a, a much bigger audience? Um, between Mondays and Fridays when there's no matches on, how can we get get our, our name out there and, and win new fans? And the QPR example was, was a great one in terms of really what a documentary is all about in terms of having uh, getting in uh, um, and finding out all the dirty details as well as the good details about how a club is run. Kartik, what about uh, the last piece of news for uh, this section? Yeah, so this weekend we're going to have another one of those uh, MLS-NFL doubleheaders on... Uh, Fox Sports uh, over the air. Um, last year they had 1.3 million viewers, more or less, uh, uh, the most kind of uh, most watched MLS telecast of any kind in 12 years. They're once again going to do uh, a similar thing this year with a split national coverage. Those of you who have a 4:15, I believe it is, NFL kickoff, will get the uh, on Fox on your local Fox affiliate. Will get Sporting Kansas City versus the LA Galaxy from Children's Mercy Park, a U.S. Open. Champion Kansas City against a struggling LA Galaxy team have lost both of their last two games 4 0, including 4 0 last night in Atlanta. Speaking of Atlanta, if you have a 1 o'clock NFL kickoff on your local Fox affiliate, uh, you will get Atlanta United against Montreal at Mercedes Benz Stadium. Big game, Montreal. Huge victory over Toronto that came out of nowhere at BMO. They're back in the playoff race. It looked like uh, they had been written off for dead. So if they can win this game, um, Montreal, they're, they're right back in the mix. Uh, that game would be a 5 p.m. kickoff on your local Fox affiliate. You're going to have to check your local listings wherever you are to know which game you're going to get. Yeah, and also Landon Donovan's going to be making his uh, MLS broadcast debut on Fox uh, this weekend, Kartik, as, as part of one of those games. I, I don't know which game he'll be on, though. I have to yeah. mention that. But, but, do, do you, by uh, any chance? I do not. Um, if you want to take a look uh, in a second. But, I, I mean, to me, Kartik, I mean, this is, um, this is just a way t- for MLS to juice the numbers. And, and essentially, I mean, you could have Halifax Town against Accrington Stanley and put that on a broadcast next to an NFL game uh, this Sunday and get major numbers and, and report right. that... Uh, yeah. Even Ackerton Stanley had over 1.2 uh, million people watching this game. And when, when it's not really, it's all it is is you're uh, doing a doubleheader with an MLS, uh, NFL broadcast. And uh, for all the bars and all the homes that have the NFL games on, they're just hoping that people just, just leave the TV sets Got on it. and not even... Donovan will be working with John Strong on the uh, Los Angeles-Kansas City game, which is, uh, I think, a little bit unfortunate. I'd like to see him on the Atlanta game. That game will be Del Camera and Brad Friedel. Yeah, so it's uh, yeah, Atlanta would have been would have been a better one, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, you can predict next week probably by Tuesday or Wednesday, probably Wednesday, you'll have um, MLS press release going out and uh, a story on Twitter about uh, MLS breaks uh, records. Look, uh, do you, I don't know if you remember. You probably remember this. Some of our listeners don't. There was a season where Fox decided to throw 
tape-delayed Premier League games yeah. that they had already shown live on Fox Soccer Channel uh, at 11 a.m. on a Sunday on after NFL games, and they got uh, even higher numbers than this. I mean, it was pretty um, – I thought it was pretty absurd. <laughs> there were games that, uh, if you had any interest in soccer at all, you probably already knew the results of. Uh, one was a Liverpool Arsenal game. Uh, excuse was, me, a Liverpool Man United game, if I remember. Well, right. Chelsea. It was Chelsea Liverpool, and, and it Chelsea. St- still holds the record for the most watched uh, Premier League match. I think it was 1.6 million. Uh, it was on a Sunday, tape delayed. I think it was around about this. Yeah, it would have been like like January or February. Um, but but yeah, again, too, it's a number that. Uh, I, I just don't pay much attention to because, yes, it's a massive number, no matter who, who's playing, if it's MLS or, or the Premier League in the past. Uh, but it's a fake number. It's just, to me, it's not a real number of the number of people that are actually wanting to go out of the way to watch the match. And uh, we've seen this with the Bundesliga. The Bundesliga did this, I think, last year or the year before. They had a big number. They had like a, like a 1.1 million uh, number of viewers for a Bayern Munich game that was tape-delayed. And the following week, when Bayern Munich had their game on FS1, I think uh, like a week later, it had 68,000 people watching it or something like that. Uh, it's just, um, to me, it's just a way for both Fox and MLS to say, hey, look at us, aren't we great? And just to, just to juice the numbers up, just make the numbers look a lot bigger than they actually are. Yeah, I I, uh, I think that that also another thing that's happened is that the shift of early season uh, MLS games from ESPN two to ESPN, uh, which began last season. Uh, there are far more ESPN broadcasts than ESPN two broadcasts. That bumps the numbers up slightly, but uh, again, now we're seeing late in the season most of those games on ESPN two, so that offsets it a bit. But it's just interesting to look at the tricks that Fox and ESPN play to try and bump up that MLS bottom line number ever so slightly so they can say the ratings are improving each season right when in reality we know the television audience is stagnant yeah and as of last week i think mls numbers tv numbers uh, for this season are down about between four and six percent so this will give them a bump and this may may, may move it up to you know, they're down two percent now after, after this big weekend or something like that uh, we'll have to wait and see but anyway that that's just me trying to be at least realistic. In some ways, uh, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for uh, more mainstream fans to watch a soccer match and just come across it by accident. And hopefully they'll continue watching uh, MLS games or Premier League or whatever it is uh, in following weeks. But we've seen that this isn't the case. But ah. anyway, let's move on, Kartik. TV ratings. We don't have all of the numbers in yet. Um, but we do have a few. So I'll just go through um, a few of these. Uh, of course, we'll have all of them later this week on worldsoccertalk.com. Uh, Spurs against Swansea was on NBC. Uh, that one had 621,000 people. Man United against Everton on NBCSN. That one had 534,000. Watford, Man City, uh, that had 335,000. Oh, let me, uh, before I completely forget, let me mention a smart move by NBC, Irma-related, for the previous week, which was to bring Andres Cantor up to Connecticut. Uh, I wasn't able to watch it because we were in the middle of uh, uh, Irma, but Andres Contour was uh, apparently in the NBC studios on the English language broadcast of one of the games, ah. uh, flying up from Miami and going to Connecticut. And, and I, that would have been a treat. I, I wish I had seen it, uh, but we, we had already lost power by that time. Yeah, yeah, me too. I think uh, either that or, or I was traveling, but, but I missed it too. I, I, I did hear about it, but I was wondering why, but, but that makes total sense, Kartik. Um, so uh, Chelsea against Arsenal was on CNBC, and uh, that one had 328,000 viewers. 
uh, the USA, New Zealand friendly. The first one, which was on last Friday on the SPN2, had 272,000. And then um, the final two was uh, New York Red Bulls against Philadelphia on ESPN on Sunday. And that one had 259,000 viewers. And then last but not least, uh, Southampton against Crystal Palace, uh, 209,000 on NBCSN. Kartik, moving on to our listener mailbag. Uh, the first question or comment is from a, a, uh, a listener, and he posted this on the website. This is in response to our last podcast where we talked about uh, kind of criticizing the U.S. soccer media for um, being soft on the U.S. men's national team, especially after the poor performances of late. And it's from uh, Silver Ray, and he says, um, I have yet to see a scathing article on how Bruce Arena's failing U.S. soccer on worldsoccertalk.com hold yourselves responsible too. Which he raises a good point. Uh, and it's something too that uh, we've been critical on this podcast about Bruce Arena. Oftentimes, uh, we don't have time to go ahead and um, the amount of time we do take to do the podcast, uh, sometimes we don't have time to go ahead and write a subsequent article that talks about the same topic. Um, but uh, I think there's something we'll be taking a closer look at in the near future. And of course, the US hopefully will do well against... Uh, against Panama and uh, in some of these games where we wouldn't have to write it. But, but we'll, we'll wait and see what happens. The next uh, one is from Larry Kern. He posted this on worldsoccertalk.com. He says, the quality of play in the MLS is kind of pathetic. The more American uh, players that decide to play for teams in this country, the worse our national team will become. Playing in Europe is the only way to strengthen the player to the point that he can positively uh, has a, have a positive effect on the national squad's performance. The level of play in MLS is about equal to quality in most Central American countries, which in turn, which in turn allows a thriving fan base. There are many, many uh, Central American immigrants in our country. As a result, MLS teams are generally competitive, but not superior to clubs in CONCACAF. Our national team performs at about the same level when playing CONCACAF teams. Being a, being a feeder league, much like Brazil, Argentina and others, has been a very lucrative venture over the years. Selling young players to top teams in Europe has allowed those countries to reap the benefits when these players uh, come home to play uh, for their respective national teams. Uh, MLS should be a stepping stone to greater things in Europe, not a place for a talented player to languish against mediocre competition. Any thoughts on that one, Kartik? Yeah, a couple things. Uh, first off, I, I don't think the quality of play in MLS is pathetic. I think uh, one thing is if you're comparing it to uh, the level of play in Europe, travel is much uh, more extensive and you're playing over the summer. So that affects quality and speed of play. Uh, but a lot of the other things Larry has said I agree with. Uh, MLS should be a feeder league. I've said that for years. The goal should be to develop guys uh, between the ages of 18 and 21 and 22 and sell them on. That should absolutely be the goal of the league. And I think it is in some regards. Uh, uh, one thing that was mentioned last night was Alejandro Moreno saying Tata Martino, unlike most MLS managers, has said that about his young players at Atlanta United, the likes of Andrew Carrollton and others. Hey, I want to make this guy good enough to where I can sell him to a European club. Of course, that's a guy coming from the perspective of being an uh, Argentine manager who also managed in Europe. So that may be a, a little bit different perspective, but that's the right perspective. You look at leagues like the Belgian League. The Belgian League right now, the standard of play has improved. Um, and what's happened is those clubs have been able to sell their players uh, at the ages of 21 or 22 to big clubs in Spain, England, Germany, France, uh, Italy. 
And what uh, ended up happening is Belgium's national team has essentially eclipsed the Dutch national team. They're doing what the Dutch used to do. They've accepted their role as a feeder league within Europe, and uh, they're doing that job. So I think uh, the, the idea of Major League Soccer being a feeder league, I absolutely agree with. I don't think the quality of play is necessarily pathetic. Obviously, it could improve, but I think there's some mitigating factors that unless MLS shifts their calendar, which is something I've been an advocate for, but it seems like the, the, the pro rellers and the uh, and, and MLS fanboys, for lack of a better term, both gang up on me when I mention that. But um, unless the MLS shifts its calendar, I don't think the quality of plays are really going to improve that much, honestly. I think that has so much to do with uh, the, the slowness and methodical nature of the game that you're playing in, in the hottest months of the year in a region, North America, that generally is hotter than Europe during the summer anyway. Raymond Orozco on Facebook uh, posts, he says, uh, you guys have a phenomenal show and I agree on your points when it comes to the vocal U.S. soccer fan on social media and the reporters to report in U.S. soccer. But I think it says uh, says a lot about American sports mentality in general. If you look at NBA players or NHL players that play in international competition and underperform, if they're wearing the U.S. jersey, the talking heads, media criticism is light compared to if they were... Uh, to underperform for their club teams or individual teams in their respective sport. Uh, next up contact is Linard, and uh, he posted this on WorldSoccerTalk.com. He says, what do you guys think about the new CPL? Uh, is it a threat for MLS or a welcome competition? Oh, I'm uh, real excited about the CPL. In fact, uh, I would reference an article I wrote a few years ago for Plastic Pitch Magazine, a Canadian soccer magazine, probably about three years ago now, uh, advocating the launch of the CPL when it was first being talked about, and advocating it from an American perspective, saying, hey, I think it's important you guys in Canada have your own domestic institutions where you take care of the Canadian players. I have to admit, even though we had Edmonton and Ottawa and NASL, Ottawa is now in USL, uh, Edmonton, Ottawa, and NASL at the time, and the three uh, big Canadian teams in MLS, they are in U.S.-based leagues where U.S. priorities, both business-wise, player development-wise, and player development-wise, will always be the priority. You need to look after your own. You need to have your own league where you're looking after Canadian players and growing the Canadian game. I, I'm a big fan of the CPL. Is it a uh, threat to MLS? Um, I don't know. I, that that remains to be answered. But I am very excited about the launch of the league, and I have to admit, when I wrote that article three years ago and subsequent things that happened after that, I was skeptical. I'm always skeptical of the CSA's ability to, to pull things off because they have such a spotty track record. But it looks like the new leadership uh, of the Canadian Soccer Association is going to pull this off, and, and uh, uh, kudos to them. And there's going to be some very interesting investment groups, by the way. CFL money, uh, perhaps FC Edmonton jumping, maybe Ottawa uh, jumping from USL in a few years uh, in this league. So it'll be, it'll be a good watch. And Chris, that might be another league that we have here on uh, American television that people are, are interested in. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, is it Canadian uh, Premier League? Is that the uh, yeah, definite? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I mean, I think we have a, a tough enough a job of trying to get Americans to watch uh, MLS as far right. as uh, rather than watch uh, Canadian soccer. Uh, I think we, we're so intertwined. This is, this is a great question about the television because we're so intertwined culturally. And maybe you come from a different perspective and a more realistic perspective than me. I've worked in the game in this country, and I feel like 
having worked in the game, we have two national teams, the United States and Canada. I don't think of the U.S. as preeminent over Canada just because the leagues I've worked in have had Canadian teams, Canadian players, and have thought of them as domestic players, even if at times they didn't count as domestic players uh, in, under the roster rules. That maybe it's because I've worked in the game, I'll be interested in seeing how, how ex-Canadian player does on the Hamilton team or the Saskatchewan team in the CPL. But you're, you might be right. The larger American audience probably won't care. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think it's one of those things that, um, yes, there are some people, some Americans that are interested in seeing how the Canadians do, but for the most part, uh, they're not paying attention. And, and if anything, they're, they're paying attention more to Mexico than they are to, to Canada, and, and sometimes more than the United States in some, in some ways. Okay, Kartik, next up is Oliver Say, and uh, he posted this on worldsoccertalk.com. He says, the Fox Sports produced UEFA Champions League broadcast of Celtic against PSG, which is on Facebook Live, is by far the worst English language UEFA Champions League broadcast in the US for the past 25 years. I'm sure that Christopher Harris will skewer the the trio of Stuart Holden uh, attempting to do play-by-play, Mario Melchiot as analyst and Rachel Bonetta as host. Stuart Holden needs to call his buddy John Strong for a play-by-play clinic. Uh, before he attempts play-by-play again. At least he was trying, and he was approaching the assignment as a professional. Melchiot was clowning around. He was unprofessional. Rachel Bonetta needs to do a lot of learning on the job, and quickly, her first mistake was referring to the UEFA Champions League anthem as the national anthems. Uh, Things went downhill from there. I I will say that I did not see this one. Uh, Reason being, I think it was, I I think, Hurricane Irma. I think uh, either I had no power or I was preparing... For the, for the hurricane that was coming. Um, I did go back and watch a few minutes of this one um, to kind of get a, a gist of, of what Oliver was saying and to see if I concurred. And uh, for the most part, yeah, it's... it's. I mean, I, I'm sure from Fox Sports' perspective, they probably told the trio of them, okay, like, hey, this is Facebook Live, let's be relaxed and let's be conversational and let's have fun. Let's, let's just go ahead and, and broadcast this one and have a lot of fun. And... Um, Stuart Holden's definitely not a commentator. Mario Melchiot probably went a bit too far. And then Rachel Bonetta was probably on this one, maybe in over her head on this one. But uh, they also had the, the Man City Fire Node game. Kartik, you, you probably missed that. Uh, that was on Facebook Live. Yeah, too. I saw the first uh, 20 minutes of it and then okay. got back to working in the yard. Uh, I was streaming it without power. Without um, I was streaming it uh, with a phone line without power so how, how would i describe it? off of uh off of uh, uh lte right not off of wi-fi and uh so once it became three nil i turned it off i didn't think rachel Benetta was awful i did think malkiot was bad and holden seemed awkward so but i pr- pretty much concur with what oliver said maybe Benetta um had done a crash course the previous night after the disaster of, of celtic versus psg but uh the other two were, were off their games clearly and i think uh with Stuart Holden, we've talked about this before. Um, he is okay, but he's good when he's with John Strong, and that's again a, a commentator bringing the best out of his co-commentator. All right, two two more questions from our listeners. The next one up is Clinton Cam through email, and he says, uh, "I have been recently noticing the uh, debate among many MLS fans regarding whether to have a, pro- a promotion relegation system for the league. I want to ask a couple of questions comparing the, the MLS to other leagues." The Australian A-League has no promotion relegation and they currently are planning to expand across Australia with potentially having up to eight teams 
including another team in New Zealand. What are some of the differences between the two leagues, respectively, and can the MLS emulate some of the ideas of what the A-League is doing in order to be a successful league? Uh, given that we have heard uh, Cardiff's explanations on the problems with promotion and relegation in MLS, what is the difference between MLS and the China Super League? How can China do well with promotion and relegation in the first season while MLS cannot have promotion and relegation and uh, they have been around for 20, 20, 22 years? Given they are large countries with cities having up to three teams, such as, such as in Shanghai, uh, thank you for reading my email and keep up the good work. Yeah, a lot of American investors are risk averse. It's really kind of um, one of the the bottom lines when it comes to talking about pro, pro rel. Yeah, I agree with Clinton. I mean, it could be implemented the way it's been forced on Australia. They they didn't necessarily go along willingly to uh, doing uh, pro rel. A lot of the uh, the leadership of of the soccer community in that country. I I think we should have promotion and relegation. It's just a matter of how uh, you cut through the clutter and you have American owners who are risk averse. And if they're exposed to the open market and an open league system, as we've seen in England, look, I, I, you know, people get on me when I say this and people think that I'm just being uh, uh, an anti-nationalist or whatever. But if you own, if you're a fan of a club in England, you do not want an American buying your club. Sorry, Chris. I mean, with Swansea, you you just, you don't. And they, they seem risk averse. They seem not able to, to, to compete in, in a uh, marketplace where there aren't certain protections and certain um, entitlements they get. That's just American investors in general when it comes to sports. So I think that's really the bottom line. The problem with implementing ProRel here is that too many of the high-level investors are, don't, don't want that sort of thing. And they've shown when they invest in the, the sport abroad that, that they generally fail. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, for me as a Swansea City supporter, someone who was born in Wales, someone that's lived in the United States for 33, 34 years now, uh, having the American investors come in, actually, I think I'm, I'm more on the positive side in terms of this, uh, how it's gone so far, but um, they're looking at trying to invest and expand the stadium and actually uh, take over the, actually buy the stadium. Uh, they, they don't own it. So get the, and also get the stadium rights and make it, uh, make the club more commercially uh, generating more revenue commercially uh, worldwide. So for me, I mean, it's just, just one outlier, but one, one club. But for Swansea, it could end up being a positive where you have a foreign investor coming in, no matter where they're from, America, you know, uh, the Middle East, China, wherever, uh, investing money into the club and then hopefully expanding the stadium. And it's probably something that maybe Swansea as a club before might, might have had a tough time trying to do by themselves. So um, we'll have to wait and see. But, yeah, I see the negatives, too, from um, the foreign ownership perspective. Whether they're American or whoever they are, it's just definitely had some issues there. Lastly, Kartik, Mark Ozinski sent this one in through email. He says, I enjoy your podcast and hope you might discuss the question on a subsequent episode. We often hear that the U.S. does not have the best soccer talent and players will go to Europe to play against better talent to gain experience. Regarding uh, Christian Pulisic uh, playing in Germany, first, why does Germany, who arguably have better players already, want to bring over an American at a very young young age to help make him better? Does that not take a spot away from a homegrown player? Second, does the fact that Pulisic is playing and scoring goals over there mean that he is already uh, that he already is a top player? compared to the German talent, or is he actually quite average compared to German talent? 
how does this impact both countries' national team aspirations? That is uh, Pulisic uh, building his skills in your in in Germany, I guess, and uh, and how it might ultimately play against your country nationally. I guess if Germany played uh, the United States, perhaps. And then related question is, where does Pulisic stack up compared to a Jordan Mar- Morris who's instead playing in MLS? And why is Jordan Morris not over in Europe too? I appreciate your response on a complex question. Um, I'll, I'll take that. First off, I don't think uh, uh, the Germans care. It, look, we, we had this conversation, you and I, in Dusseldorf with some Bundesliga officials. Uh, they... It's the United States. They kind of were mocking the United States, the obsession with the national team of the United States. When you are in a footballing culture, your primary goal, if you are a club side like Borussia Dortmund, is to develop talent for Borussia Dortmund. Or if you're a club side like Hoffenheim, to develop talent that you can then sell to Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund or to Liverpool or Manchester City or whoever. That is your primary focus, not whether this guy will be good for the German national team or if you're a Belgian side for the Belgian national team, etc. Club football. That's the culture. That's um, that's who develop players in these countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think Germany cares that they're developing an American player um, who who might co- come back and, and haunt Germany. Now, uh, it was a little ironic though. There was a game here in Florida in Jacksonville in 1999 where uh, Germany played the United States, and the United States won, and they scored three goals, and all three goals were scored by guys uh, who were in the Bundesliga. And uh, in, in in the case of uh, Jovan Karofsky, I think had one of the goals had been there a while. Um, so that, there is the, those those ironies in international football. Look at uh, the U.S. this past month, right? Um, every goal against the United States was scored by someone in Major League Soccer, um, yeah. who you could argue with that, that, oh, gosh, MLS is helping um, the rest of CONCACAF more than the United States, and I think at this point it is. I, I, the point is I just don't think people care. Now, on the uh, the clubs care. They're looking to develop talent for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the um, Jordan Morris question, he made a decision. First of all, he, he played college soccer, so he's on a completely different trajectory than Pulisic. He made a decision to sign with the Seattle Sounders when he had an offer from Werder Bremen. Um, now, speaking of Werder Bremen, we have another big American prospect, Joshua Sargent, uh, from St. Louis. You and I were talking to Taylor Twelman about him uh, two months ago when Twelman was here in Fort Lauderdale for the El Clasico match. And uh, uh, Twelman indicated to us he thought that Sargent was going to sign uh, in, in Europe and not in MLS, if you remember when we were talking to him. And right. sure enough, Werder Bremen uh, put out a press release, which I think was uh, lost in all the talk of NASL lawsuit versus the USSF, put out a press release on Wednesday saying that they've agreed to sign Sargent. He's still 17. He doesn't turn 18 until next year. But uh, they have agreed to sign him, and he will uh, uh, come to Germany on his, on his 18th birthday and will play with the uh, with the uh, youth side, and then next year will be integrated. Next season will be integrated into the first-team squad. So I, I think that there are guys uh, now that, if they're able to go to Europe at the age of 17 or 18, they go. Uh, there are other players. We have a couple guys who come through MLS academies. I mentioned Andrew Carrollton uh, at Atlanta, a guy that they might sell on. Eric Palmer Brown, another guy, uh, has come through Sporting Kansas City's academy. I, I think maybe he stagnated being in MLS. He has signed a pre-contract with Manchester City. He's not going to play for the first team at Man City yet. But um, different, different strokes for different folks. I think um, it, it's now becoming a case where – um, it depends on your own comfort level. Uh, a lot of guys are comfortable just staying in the United States and developing, and hopefully if they do that, they get games because it is d- more difficult to break in in Germany. Real quickly, I know this is a long answer, uh, but it was a long question. We have several guys 
in Germany that you may not know about. Weston McKinney is a guy that just started for Schalke the other day uh, in the Bundesliga. He's an 18-year-old. We have Haji Wright over there. We have Nick, Nick Tadaguay over there. We have a number of young American players who have gone uh, to Germany who have been under the radar uh, and they've gone after Pulisic went. So mm-hmm. I think the general trend is if you're a better U.S. player, and, and obviously I'm mentioning Joshua Sargent too, uh, if you're a better U.S. player, you go to Germany. If you're not in that top tier, you're going to sign with an MLS development academy or even a development academy connected to a pro club in USL or um, NASL. And it's not just about uh, playing time, though, too, Kontek. I think it's also about the coaching level, uh, the, the training that oh, they're getting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In Germany, it's much, much higher. So, so yeah, so it makes sense. And, and actually, at the end of the day, it will help out the U.S. national team, uh, but it, not directly. And in answer to uh, the question from before, too, I, I concur in terms of uh, from Mark, is that um, it's based on the club side, but uh, has um, it, it can help the, the national team um, on, on the U.S. national side, but that's not what they're thinking. They're thinking on the, on a club-specific basis. How does this impact uh, Dortmund or Bremen or whoever, whichever the team is? Now, for uh, listeners, if you do have any questions or feedback uh, or uh, want to agree or disagree with anything we've said on the show, feel free to contact us. We'd be more than happy to read out your questions on air. You can reach us uh, through email, which is uh, web at worldsoccertalk.com. It's uh, through Twitter at WSoccerTalk, and then Facebook is facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk, or through our website, worldsoccertalk.com, in the comments section. And, Kartik, moving on to our feature topic of the week, and this is one that uh, you and I kind of traded some emails back and forth earlier this week. We were kind of discussing some story ideas, and I had one story idea which is talking about um, how soccer is no longer a niche sport, and it's it's uh, a lot of people say ah, soccer is just a very niche sport in the United States. And I, every time I hear that, it just rubs me the wrong way. I completely disagree with that. Uh, but I think from your perspective, I think you agreed with it. So yes. we were going back and forth. Uh, we didn't we didn't get a chance to discuss it, so we thought we'd discuss it here. But I'll let, I'll let you go first in terms of uh, your thoughts on this one, and then I'll step in in a little bit. Yeah, and I have an article that will be up at World Soccer Talk uh, fairly soon regarding my point of view. I think there's a difference between being an underground sport, which soccer was in this country 10 years ago, to being a niche sport and then being a mainstream sport. I think there's three three things on the ladder. I would say mainstream sports year-round are really just football, baseball, basketball. That's it. Uh, maybe golf, maybe NASCAR racing, maybe. Uh, golf, there tends to be spikes around the, the majors and also um, the major tournaments, the four major tournaments, championships, and the World Golf Championship events. So, and NASCAR, we've seen their numbers come down fairly steadily the last several years, and, and it's it's now kind of falling toward a niche level. So maybe it's we, we, we think of these things differently. I just don't think, and I, I have a, a lot that I've written out, and as I said, there'll be an article on this on World Soccer Talk soon. I, I don't think that there is enough of a sustained interest in soccer in this country year-round to make it a mainstream sport. Yet, now, we've gone from being underground to being niche, which is a, a big jump. Uh, but when you look at these television ratings, and we go through them every week, if it's not a massive international uh, tournament, you don't see numbers clearing two million. Uh, even the Champions League final, even with the Real Madrid Barca El Clasico game in Miami, with all the buildup ESPN had, you don't have games car- 
uh, clearing two, two and a half million regularly. You don't have that for Premier League games. We, you mentioned it earlier that the highest rated Premier League game still to this day is a tape delayed game that was shown on Fox five or six years ago. Now there's much more interest in the Premier League now, thanks to, ES, uh, to NBC, than there was when ESPN and Fox were showing it. But it seems to have tailed off. And I think NBC's acknowledged that in the way they've marketed the Premier League. Uh, it, it's similar to hockey for them. I would consider the NHL a niche other than during the Stanley Cup playoffs. College basketball is a niche, except during the NCAA tournament. And soccer is a niche, except during the Copa America or World Cup. They, I think it's, it's pretty simple, and we can we can get a little deeper into this. Yeah, so, so, so from my perspective, um, what I look at is looking at, say, an average week of soccer in the United States. So we did a podcast a few weeks ago where we are talking about the, the sheer number of games that uh, MLS is competing against. And it's not even MLS, it's Premier League, it's Liga MX, it's, it's all of them. But on that particular weekend that we were looking at, there was 155 soccer games available uh, to, to viewers in the United States. Uh, many of them were on streaming, but also a bunch of them were on television. Now, you look at other sports. So you look at uh, NFL football. You look at uh, NBA basketball. You look at Major League Baseball and uh, count the number of games that are going on on a typical weekend. Uh, it's soccer is so much bigger in terms of more of a global world sport that if you took those 155 games and then combined all of the the viewing numbers for those matches, it's it's not a niche sport. It's it's a it's a big sport in the United States. You I mean it's not your NFL football, but uh, those numbers, which at one point in the future, I'm going to have to calculate and see what those numbers are. But they're going to be some pretty impressive numbers. The challenge that soccer has is it, it is so uh, fractured in terms of so many options to watch. Um, you know, I mean, whether you're watching Premier League, Liga MX, uh, MLS, you mean, and then you go down the list. I mean, League One, uh, La Liga. I mean, there's so many leagues to watch that those numbers look small when you look at it on a single basis for each of those matches. But again, when you combine those, those are some pr- impressive numbers. The one thing I w- will say about NFL football or the NFL, is that um, it's so big in the United States that it looks it makes every other sport look small. So, I mean, in many ways, I think that NFL is bigger um, in, the, in the United States than soccer is in the, the UK or Great Britain because America is such a massive country, such a much, much bigger population, uh, a lot more channels kind of broadcasting, you know, ESPNs and FS1s, all day long, it's all NFL or college football uh, versus the UK, which is a lot smaller country, that uh, NFL football is bigger than, than, say, the Premier League in the United Kingdom only. Um, but the thing with the, the United States is if you take away NFL football and you say, okay, all right, let's take football out of this uh, conversation and then look at what's left. So you look at basketball, baseball, soccer, uh, NHL. I think in that conversation, I think soccer is actually is pretty competitive in terms of in that discussion of you mean uh, talking about which sports is one of the biggest. It's just that the NFL uh, kind of dwarfs everything else and makes soccer look, look small when when actually in fact it isn't. I just want to th- throw out a few stats, Kartik. But uh, soccer is the, so- the second most popular sport in the U.S. among Americans aged 12 to 24. So that's huge in terms of um, the growth of soccer as, as they get older. Uh, soccer fans are 20% more likely um, than the average American to have household incomes over $100,000. Uh, 
and they're 31% more likely to have children under 17 at home. So not only are they 20% more likely to be um, more affluent, uh, but also they have a lot of children, so that has a big impact in terms of, uh, again, growing the sport of soccer uh, even more so in the U.S. Uh, among Hispanic Americans aged 12 to 24, soccer is the number one sport. And last but not least, uh, the sport of soccer is increasingly popular among Americans aged 6 to 17, uh, 11% of the TV audience who watch Premier League soccer on NBC, SN, are kids from 6 to 17, compared to only 4.6% of World Series audience, 9.4% of NBA Conference Finals, and 9% of NHL Conference Finals. So it, you've got a ton of uh, kids, teens, uh, young adults watching soccer, uh, living up and, and growing with the sport. Um, and to me, to me, when you look at it, I mean, to me, it's not a niche sport. It's, it's one of the major sports in the U.S. It's just that the NFL makes it look small. I think you're looking at a situation where we have to hope that those people stay with soccer. I've seen uh, interest in soccer in the past when it was more of an underground sport, admittedly, and, and didn't have this sort of exposure. Interest in soccer before among kids who were in youth soccer or in college because it was a cool thing in college and they met folks uh international folks who were liverpool fans or whatever uh, at their universities and then uh, they get back uh get into the job market and it's football 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 or, or a miami heat or, or whatever um baseball new york yankees so uh, that and I, I mentioned this in the article i'm writing uh, that that's a big part of it is making sure that current generation that is playing youth soccer that loves the sport and loves the participatory side of the sport and is walking around uh, shopping malls with Liverpool and Real Madrid shirts on stays with the sport. And if they do, I think it mainstreams it. But I, they're 12 to 24 now, as you mentioned. When they're in that 35 to 44-year-old age bracket and they're still with soccer, then we're mainstream. Uh, and we're close, right? I mean, we'll know in the next five to seven years if they stick with it. But uh, I actually agree with your point on that, and that's part of my point is I've seen the drop-off in the past of people who are soccer fans, and then they get intoxicated by the college football culture or the, uh, uh, or the NFL culture, and they, yeah, they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm a Chelsea fan, but they're not really paying attention to Chelsea anymore. Um, I'm hoping that the availability – and again, a lot of that, I should mention, happened when the Premier League was on – um, Fox Soccer Channel, a channel most people didn't get, and the um, NB, and there wasn't the kind of availability of internet streams, legal internet streams that there are now. And La Liga was on Gold TV, and uh, etc. And you you couldn't see soccer as as readily as you can. Um, I think that that's uh, that that's a thing. And then also uh, Atlanta United, it's a it's a, it's one city. Right, it's one club, but it's the first time we've seen MLS really make it in a big way in a major, major market. And that there's kind of a mainstreaming of soccer in Atlanta, a notoriously fickle sports town, by the way. A sports town which notoriously uh, doesn't support even winning baseball and basketball teams. I mean, a, a town where uh, when uh, the Braves were, were, were winning the, uh, win, winning the uh, NL East every year, they had half-empty stadiums. And a, and a city where uh, Georgia Tech football and Georgia Tech basketball would be competing at a high level in the ACC and there would be limited interest. And, you know, just uh, that's why there was a lot of question marks about MLS in that city. But it seems to have really worked. 
And so there might be that might be what you're talking about, Chris. There might be a lot of 12 to 24 year olds in Atlanta saying, "This is my team. I'm more into this than the Atlanta Falcons or the Atlanta Hawks." Or um, it's it's also a town that's lost an NHL team twice, and NHL teams don't relocate often. So um, that's the kind of bad sports market it is. So to me, that's a very healthy sign, but I'm not ready yet to say uh, it, all of these things we're talking about are definitive in that it's a mainstream sport. One of the biggest factors, I think, is uh, accessibility. So we talk about a lot of these kids are getting into soccer. It's their favorite sport or second favorite sport. And they're between the ages of 12 and 24 or, um, say, 12 and 27, say, perhaps. Um, the issue I have is accessibility. So if they're growing up and they're wearing Messi shirts or Ronaldo shirts and they're, they're loving La Liga and they're loving the, the sport of soccer, Still to this day, La Liga is not as accessible as it should be. It should be these some of these games, especially the big games, should be on your you mean your ABCs or CBSs of the world or you mean I guess NBC, Foxes, etc. Instead, it's on being sports, and there's nothing wrong with being sports, but it's not as accessible. And it, and that's part of the reason I think in many ways that NFL is so popular and that uh, the NBA is that you can be switching on Fox, your local Fox station, and, and be watching these games. You don't have to try to get uh, a diagram to figure out, okay, now how do I get being sports? And, okay, all right, it's not available, or, or FS2. It's not available in, in my area, but then now I have to get a subscription to a streaming service, and I have to get a Chromecast to be able to stream it to my, my, my TV set. It's just too complicated, too many steps for a lot of people. So making it as accessible and as easy as possible to watch watch the sport is going to help uh, on a continuous basis. And I don't mean just I mean an MLS game as a doubleheader of, of an NFL game this weekend, and then you, you don't see it again on there for another, another year. I'm talking about on a regular basis. So it's, uh, I don't know, it's going to take time. Uh, I still think it just still rubs me the wrong way when people say it's a very niche sport. I disagree with that still. Um, but uh, there's still a long way to go for it to grow, but I still think it's established as a major sport in the United States and, and will continue to do so. Now, Kartik, uh where can listeners find you on the internet uh, if you have any uh, new articles or uh, to stay on top of uh, the latest uh, Kartik happenings? Yeah, there'll be. Um, you can find me on Twitter at KKFLA737 here at WorldSoccerTalk.com, uh, over at uh, TheFloridaSqueeze.com, and various places. I'll be on SiriusXM tonight if you're listening to this Thursday, uh, discussing the NASL lawsuit with our friend Brian Dunseth and, and Tony Miola, our friends, um, and uh, just various places this uh, this last week because of the NASL situation. So I'm popping up in some different places. Excellent. Well, thanks for listening. You can get a new episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast every Thursday. Every episode is released on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, Audioboom, and worldsoccertalk.com. If you like the show, share it with your friends on social media and give us a review. In Kartik, what should they do? Enjoy your football. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 